Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name to each of you. It's good to be together again, to worship together this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, first chapter. We're not going to re-preach it. We'll just start there, touch on a verse or two as we move in. Romans, the first chapter. Will you turn there? I'll thank you for your prayers. Pray for those who preach this past week was Minister's Week in Ohio, but with crops coming off and various other things, I wasn't able to go. But with today's technology, I felt like I was there. I got to listen in. Uh, as I did field work, I listened in on my Bluetooth to the most of the uh, sessions. And uh, Brother Ray Hoover, uh, his daughter Christy, married to uh, King, drawing a blank on his name, but anyway, Sherilyn's old, uh, he preached on preaching, or he taught how to preach, and he talked about the work of, of preaching and preparation. And uh, I appreciated this. Preaching through the book of Romans is quite different than preaching on John 3.16. It takes more work, and uh, we appreciate your prayers in that. In fact, I learned as I'm studying the book of Romans, I'll study a while, and then I'll I'll go out and pace or walk around or go outside a little and try to comprehend and then go back and do it again. And uh, it's good in developing the Word of God. So a bit of a review on what we've studied so far. It's been, we've had council meeting communion and a number of other things in between. So it's been a while since we've looked at Romans. Beginning in uh, Romans 1, uh, we looked at the first half of Romans 1, and we noticed that the book of Romans opens with God's call. God uh, called Paul to be a servant, and Paul responded to that call, so he opens it up and talks about the call. Then he talks about the cause for ministry, and that's in verses 3 and 4. Concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, which is made the seed of David, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So that is the cause. That's the, the, the reason, the only reason that we have uh, to to pursue relationship with God is because of the work of Jesus Christ. And then we have the communion. That's verses 7 through 13. We see there the koinonia, and he talks about thanking God for all the other saints and, and the believers and his prayer for them and his longing to see them and the mutual comfort and the mutual faith and how he longed to be in their presence. So there we see the communion or the koinonia of Christian fellowship, and in verses 14 through 17, he talks about the fact that he is a debtor. He, he, is, uh, he has a charge that he must discharge, and I call that the commission and the constraint. So we had the call, the communion, the commission, and the constraint. And then we come into the second message, which was the second half of Romans 1, and we see the wrath or the displeasure of God being revealed. And it shows how that's revealed. It's a chilling account of what happens when mankind chooses to reject God, reject God as creator, to reject the presence of God in their lives, and to, to reject His sovereignty in all of life. And God's displeasure then is revealed step by step there in the last half of Romans 1, where He, he gives up and He gives over. He pulls back His spiritual protection from our minds and our, our lives. And he eventually, if we go down all those steps of rejecting God, he will give us over to a reprobate mind and allow us to, to experience the full um, and, and 
penalty, so to speak, of serving Satan here in this life and in the life to come. And one of the things I've noticed there that, God's, that brings God's displeasure is, is when mankind gives glory to themselves or anything else rather than giving glory to God. And he said, uh, God said a number of times we looked at there in the book of Isaiah, he said, I will not give my glory to another. And that brings us then, brought us then to the third message, which is the first half of Romans chapter 2. We look at the second half today. And just on the end of God revealing uh, his, his revelation of displeasure to those who reject him, then he brings a sobering message to believers, and he says, be careful that you don't raise yourself up as a judge over others. Say, wherefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou judgest that judgest doeth the same things. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, that thou doest the same, that thou shalt, not escape, that thou shalt escape the judgment because of God? And in verse 4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? And we are not the judge made it very clear. We are not the judge. God is. And I've just noticed again and again, the ground, ground, we all come there as sinners. And the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground, and we come there and fall before God at the cross. And we are all equal as sinners before God. And it's interesting here in verse 4 that I've already read. He says, When we do not offer grace to others as God has offered grace to us, we are despising the riches of His goodness and His forbearance and His long-suffering towards us, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. I wasn't planning to say this, but it just came to mind. Uh, Brother Luke Benich spoke... Uh, on purity at the Minister's Week in Ohio, and I for sure listened in to all his uh, He is a man who was on the mission field and fell into to immorality, and he talked about wrestling with this thing. He's, he's now a bishop in, in Pilgrim, I believe. He, this was years ago, and he wrestled with this thing, what do I do? I have two choices. Either I humble myself before God in all the world and come clean, or I try to hide it the rest of my life. Thankful he chose to come clean. And he speaks out of that experience. And he said something that was very interesting. Actually, Wolfgang Migiani <laughs> followed him with two sessions as well, and they both spoke on similar subjects. And they both said the same thing. It was really interesting to me and challenging. But Luke Bennett said the greatest inspiration for him to get up and start his life anew, spiritual life, and to walk in victory was the realization of forgiveness. He said the forgiveness that he experienced from his wife, his children, and his church was the greatest inspiration for him to live in victory today. And he used the Scripture... To whom much is forgiven, 
who, he who is forgiven much loveth much. That was the verse he, he expanded on that. And that's a challenge to me, and I, I challenge you to think on that. That he said the greatest inspiration for him to get up and go forward in his relationship was his forgiveness from God, his forgiveness from all them around him, and the, the offering to, to begin anew and serve the Lord faithfully. So that was a challenge to me uh, to offer that forgiveness to those who repent and want to move forward. All right. Today we begin a study on the discourse on the, uh, the Romans' discourse on the law, circumcision, and God's faithfulness to all mankind, and that will be in the second half of, verse, of chapter 2. But first of all, I'd like for us to, to ponder some things. Let's turn off all your uh, distractions, and let's think together about a number of questions. And it's helping me as I work through the book of Romans to think on these things. Is God looking for a performance-based obedience and service, or is God looking for a relationship-based obedience and service? Think about that through. Is God looking for a performance-based obedience and relationship, or no, performance-based obedience and service, or is He looking for relationship-based obedience and service? Just think about this. Which is God looking for? Well, maybe you're thinking, what's the difference? Let me explain a little. In a performance-based approach to obeying God, we follow the guidelines for the purpose of receiving something in return. You follow me? If, if I'm focused on performance, I'm doing it to get something in return, i.e., I am going to attempt to avoid sin because I want to go to heaven. All right? And if I want to go to heaven, I must follow certain criteria in order to please God by my performance. Is that Christianity? All right? Would... On the other hand, relationship-based Christianity says, how can I die more fully to self, love my Savior more, and serve Him better? Let me read a song to you, a very familiar song. 434. 434. I'm 440. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love, at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my will and make it Thine. I shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. I just read a hymn of relationship-based obedience. I love the Lord so much for what He's done for me and God that I am giving my life to them. 
understanding that my life has been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and I, the, all I can do is nothing in comparison to what He's done for me. So therefore, I, I give my life in service to Him. So there's the, the two options that I want us to think about. The performance-based relationship where I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going through this motion to try to get into heaven. And I'm afraid maybe we see it that way sometimes more than we think we should, or than I wish we should, would. I don't see that as much now as I would have years ago, but you know, you're young, it's time to get out and sow your wild oats and have some fun before you settle down and join the church because, well, you know, being Christian, that, that's an oppressive life, and it's just not, not, it's not fun. So you've got to have some fun while you're young. Well, that's the exact opposite of truth. That's, that's sowing seeds that will haunt you the rest of your life. That's, that's giving Satan a foothold in your life. And no, that's not the good life. The good life is in Christ. Um, now, another question for you. Would you rather be, as a married person, would you rather be in a performance-based marriage or a relationship-based marriage? Which would you rather be in? Wives, would you rather be in a relationship with your husband where he read a really good book on marriage that said, good husbands vacuum so many times a week and do this and do this and do this and do this, and your husband is just focused on keeping that law. You know, he's performing right. He's doing what the book said a good husband would do. Now, you don't have much conversation, and you really can't share your heart with him because it's all performance, right? Or would you rather be in a marriage where he may be doing these things, but there's koinonia. You're together, and you love being together, and you have good conversation. You can share your heart with your husband, and you, he cares about you, and he understands. Which would you rather be in? You starting to get the picture here? Right? Merle Burkholder spoke on this at Minister's Week back last summer. That's where I picked up these ideas and developed them from his talk. You see, performance-based says, all right, so you come in, and you're tired, and you want to sit down in your easy chair in the evening, and your wife says, honey, I hate to tell you this, but my kitchen's sick. My kitchen sink, the drain's clogged. In a performance-based relationship, you say, is this a divorce issue? If, if I don't unclog the drain for you, are you going to divorce me? And if she says yes or no, that determines whether or not you unclog the drain. Now, that's a stretch, but you understand what I'm saying. Or, in a relationship-based, you say, Dear wife, there's no one in the world I'd rather be around while I unclog the kitchen sink. And you do it. I picked that because ours clogs up every several years, and it's not in the trap. It's some reason way over in the far corner of the basement where the two-and-a-half-inch line drops into the big trunk line. Every now and then something gets there, and it clogs all the way back up. And there's, it's a fair amount of labor to get down there and get that thing. But anyway... Uh, or you say, you know, dear, there's no one in the world I'd rather be around while I'm unclogging the kitchen sink. And you have good relationship while you're unclogging the sink or whatever you're doing. All right. In performance-based 
relationship with God, we ask a very similar question. And this is what Merle was talking about. He says, all right, is this a salvation issue? In other words, if I'm just trying to get to heaven, and I don't really have that koinonia with God, and I look at the Scripture, and there's something there that just my flesh has to really die to fulfill. And I look at the Scripture, and I say, is that a salvation issue? In other words, if I don't do that, am I going to lose my salvation? Is that a salvation issue? Versus, God, I love you so much. Our Sunday school lesson today, if we love him, we keep his commandments, that our joy may be full. How can I die more fully to serve you? Example of a lady, it's a true story. She's married twice. Her first husband was harsh and demanding. She went through all the, the ritual that ladies go through. She cooked, she cleaned, she bore children, what have you. And it was a, it was a difficult existence for her because she did not feel loved or appreciated. Harsh husband dies. Years later, she remarries a man who loved her and cherished her. And after they'd been married a while, she had a revelation. She said, I'm cooking and cleaning and caring for the children and doing everything I have did before, and I didn't enjoy it. And she said, now I love it. I love doing it. What made the difference? She had a husband who loved her, who cherished her. They had koinonia. They had relationship. And out of that, the joy of serving each other was evident. Right? So I come back to the original question. Is God looking for performance-based obedience and service, or is He looking for a relationship out of which we love Him and serve Him spontaneously? And I think you know the answer, right? He's looking for that relational relationship that we serve Him because we love Him. And I may be wrong, but the older I get, the more I study Scripture. God's plan for us is that we enter into deep and meaningful relationship with Him through the work of Jesus Christ, the indwelling presence of His Spirit. And out of that, we will someday enjoy the bliss of heaven. But it begins now in our relationship with Him and Heaven is a benefit of that relationship with God. So what is God looking for in His children? The blood-bought saints that He purchased back to Himself, we are. The blood-bought saints that He purchased back to Himself after we all went astray with the precious blood of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Turn with you in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. We're still working on this question between performance-based and relation-based relationship with God. 
Verse 14, But be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, and what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell with them and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I will let you into heaven when you die, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Did I read something wrong? Yes. Notice verse 16. He said, What agreement hath the temple with God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. For God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's, it's developing for us a picture of that relationship-based interaction with God. And in verse 17 says, In light of that fact, wherefore, in light of that fact that God wants to dwell in us and walk with us and be our God and have us to be His people, he says, In light of that, come out from among them, the evil around us, and be ye separate from the evil around us, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I won't just let you into heaven. I will receive you into that close, deep relationship with God. And in verse 18, And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I will receive you as a father. What kind of a father? The father that Jesus cried out to, and he said, Abba, Father, a term of endearment. We get the word Papa from that. And that's why that we obey, verse 7, wherefore, or chapter 7, verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us tense ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's why we do that. It's because of the relationship we have with God the wherefore of that relationship, that we don't want to be part of this evil system of the world around us. We want that Abba Father relationship with God, and we want to walk with Him in close fellowship. We're going to be talking about Abraham here in a few weeks. And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him or credited to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham was the friend of God, and I found four places in the Scripture that refers to the fact that Abraham was a man who God referred to as my friend. So even back in the Old Covenant, those who walked by faith had that close relationship with God versus a performance-based religion. So I think the performance-based thing is religion. I don't see it as Christianity. So... All right, Israel, I mean Israel, Isaiah 41, verse 8, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham my friend. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, The seed of Abraham my friend, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee 
with the right hand of my righteousness. So here we see God in Abraham and Abraham's descendants here that he's speaking to through Jacob, his people and relationship. And he said, I will be with you, I will uphold you, and my righteous hand will be with you. So if I've studied and meditated in the book of Romans for a number of months now, working towards this and in this, this thought keeps coming to my mind. If we approach the book of Romans from a performance-based religious perspective, we're going to struggle, I believe, to fully understand it and, and comprehend everything it has for us. Because that's what, not what God is looking for. If we approach it from a performance-based religion perspective. See, God called a people to follow Him and to be a witness for Him with the goal that all people would see His goodness through the lives of His chosen people and as a result be drawn to seek God. God wanted the nation, the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, to be a people that He could show His presence and His power and His goodness and His righteousness through them, that people would be drawn in and understand there is a God in heaven. Being part of God's people was and keeping the law. God chose these people to impart to them His law. And He chose them to receive and also to attempt to keep the law. But if keeping the law apart from a loving relationship with God became the focus, then the whole purpose for being a called out people is lost. Let me say that again. If keeping the law apart from a loving, obedient relationship with God becomes the focus then the whole purpose of being a called-out people is lost, if you follow what I'm saying. How many times did God chide the children of Israel in the Old Testament? He said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So they were not representing him well to the nations around them. And we will not represent God well to the people around us if we have a performance-based focus and not a relation based focus on God, an obedience that flows out of love and adoration and appreciation for all that He has done for us. The book of Romans reminds us repeatedly that to be a child of God outwardly, we must first become a child of God inwardly. And that's where we'll finish up today on that Now, you'll find this interesting. I pulled, uh, I mean, meditating, I, I referred to Brother Merle Burkholder talking about this, uh, performance-based versus relation-based in his uh, talk. I'll just let you see if anyone can guess. What do you think his subject was the day that he laid that out? What do you think he was talking about in his subject that day? Nelson Showalter, do you know? <laughs> he was talking about upholding our brotherhood agreements. Oh, that was really interesting. He said his, his assignment was to challenge the Mid-Atlantic Conference to be a faithful church in the future as they continue to grow and expand. That was his assignment for the week. 
And he was saying that if we're asking the question, is this a salvation issue? If it's not, I'm not going to do it. We have moved into performance-based church, and we have left the loving relationship with God where I'll do anything to serve Him and to bless the brotherhood. But that's another subject for another day. But I just thought that was interesting uh, there as he laid that out for us. All right, Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. That's the verse we ended on last time. That's the verse we start on today. As I said, God is no respecter of persons, but He is an equal opportunity God. Jesus Christ is an equal opportunity Savior, and we all have equal opportunity to love and to serve God. Now, verses 12 and 13. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. Sin in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are, shall be justified. Now, it's interesting that, was it Martin Luther who liked the book of Romans, but he said the book of James was straw, I believe. Well, I'm finding as I study the book of Romans that the book of James complements the book of Romans. It really does. It really complements the book of Romans. Uh, unless you're looking for a righteousness apart from obedience. <laughs> uh, the book of James tells us not to be hearers of the Word, not to be uh, hearers the only, but be doers of the Word. And he says, if we hear the Word of God and it doesn't change our lives, we're like a person who looks in the mirror and forgets what we look like. And goes back about at his daily day. So the call is that we are to be doers and not hearers only. And that's for everyone. Verses 14 through 16. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Let me read those verses in another translation. Verse 14. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, and even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written in their hearts, their conscience witness, and their thoughts now accusing, even defending them, this will take place on the day when God would judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. How many of you have ever observed in a little child who's way too young to understand the Ten Commandments, feeling guilty when they know they did wrong? Have you ever seen that? This, this little tot, junior or junioretta, may have told the untruth or stolen something or did something. And they're way too young to understand the Ten Commandments. But you know from that child's action that their conscience is in their working, right? How did they know they did something wrong? How did they know that? I was talking to a brother once who uh, was doing mission work in, in Asia or Africa, I'm not sure, and they went way back into the tribal people back there. And guess what they found when they got there? 
The women had long uncut hair, and the men had cut hair. Who told them to do that? They didn't know there was such a thing as a Bible. How did they know that? It's because God has written in our hearts some very basic concepts and laws. And it's, that's what it's saying here. It says, when the Gentiles are unbelievers who do not have the law given to them, they'll do things required that are required in the law. You'll see them doing it because God has instilled in them a knowledge, some, somewhat of a knowledge of right and wrong. And I don't fully understand how that works, but, but that's the way it is. And he says, even though they don't have the law, but they keep it because it's written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. So, okay, God's given a conscience that has an understanding of right and wrong. And their thoughts now accusing even defending them. So he's saying, and I don't fully understand this. I should have gotten Nelson up here to preach. I didn't see him until I already gotten up. But verse 16, that on the day when God would judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, I believe there's going to be credit given to those who do what God has laid on their conscience, even though they didn't have the law. I'm not saying they're going to heaven. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God is saying, I will honor people who honor me even if they do it in ignorance, without fully understanding the concept of my righteous decrees. And he's saying that as a challenge to these descendants of Jacob. He's saying, these people just are following their conscience and doing what's right. God will give them credit for that. Now you, verse 17, now you. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God. Now where do you think Paul came up with that? Did Jesus ever offer salvation to a group of people? And they said, we don't need you. We're children of Abraham. And we've never been in bondage to anyone. I think that's one of the silliest verses, or one of the, not the, it's one of the silliest things that the Jewish people ever said to Jesus. They'd been in bondage in Egypt. They'd, they were currently in bondage to the Romans, and they were loathing under that bondage. And they stand, we're the children of Abraham. We've never been bondage to anyone. We don't need this freedom you're talking about, Jesus. <laughs> Wasn't that silly? Uh, but he's saying, and he's no doubt this thought process was still in the minds of these people he was writing to that, look, we have a relationship with God. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. Uh, we don't need this Jesus uh, Christianity that you're talking about. Verse 18, if you know his will and approve his, of what is superior because you're instructed by law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law embodiment of knowledge of the truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So he's writing here in this letter to these, to these uh, Jewish people, and he's saying, Yes, you call yourself a Jew. You brag about your relationship with God, your lineage, your heritage, whatever. And he said, you even teach others how they ought to live. Okay? You're teaching others. And you, you view yourself as a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, you have it embodied, you understand it, you know it, and you feel like you have the truth. And he says then in verse 21, Then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
And you preach against stealing, do you not steal? And you say to people, you should not commit adultery, you commit adultery. And you abhor idols, do you rob temples? And he goes on and, and challenges them in this, that you are teaching, you are instructing, you're saying that you have understanding, but then he asks all these questions. Do you commit adultery? Do you, do you commit sacrilege? Do you worship idols? Do you break the law? Are you dishonest? He says, if you're doing that, if you're doing that, and you're not living up to what you teach, we have the same problem that David acknowledged when he sinned with Bathsheba in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. And that's a challenge to us, and we talked about that in our Sunday school lesson today, and I appreciated our discussion there, that we can bring reproach to the name of God, the cause of God, and the purpose of God if we don't live up to the expectations of what the unbelievers around us know and understand that a child of God should live up to. And now we drop into verse 25. We switch from the law to a, a certain aspect of the law now. Uh, back up here. Yeah, let's, let's talk about a certain aspect of the law now. He starts talking about circumcision. And that was something else that they felt quite good about. They were the people of circumcision. For circumcision barely profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if, if the uncircumcised people keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his son's circumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter of circumcision does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is, is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. So he's saying here in verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, if it's in keeping with the way you live your life. But if you break the law, just like all the uncircumcised people around you, and if the uncircumcised people around you are actually keeping the law because of what he'd referred to earlier, that the law of God to some degree is written on their hearts and on their consciences, he's breaking up again. He said, these people are keeping the law. Of uh, they are living like uh, people who have been circumcised in the heart, even though you've been circumcised in the flesh, but not living it out from your heart. He said, they will be regarded as, as circumcised. And the one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you. And Paul keeps coming back to saying, look, these unbelievers who are observing your life, if you're just doing this performance-based thing and you're not truly living it out in your heart and in your life, and those around you are observing that you're not living it out in your heart and life, they will stand up in condemnation to you because they are living a better life than you are simply by following the written code that's laid upon their heart and through their conscience. And in verse 28, we wrap it all up here. The conclusion, it has to start inside. He said, a man is not a Jew. He's not a descendant of Abraham 
if he's only one in outward appearance or outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely an outward ordinance that they kept and a physical thing. He says, verse 29, no, a man is a true descendant of Abraham, has embraced the faith of Abraham when he is one inwardly. When he's cleansed from inside, when he's changed, when he's transformed by the Spirit, that's how that transformation takes place. Not by the written code, not just because he's following a written code, a performance religion, but because the heart has been changed and the old fleshly nature, uh, the old man has been cut off. Yeah, we always deal with the nature, but the old fleshly old man has been cut off and put away. And he says, if you're living that life, you will be praised, but your praise will not come from men, your praise will come from God. And that's what we want for our lives. We want to live a life that is pleasing to God. And it begins with the circumcision of our heart, the changed life, the purged life, through the Spirit and the work and the blood of Jesus Christ. And when that is a reality in our lives, God will be praised. Souls will be pointed to God, and lives will be changed as they respond to the reality of God's call to righteousness in their lives. A righteousness that is by faith that results in a personal relationship and obedience to God. Can we have a song?